Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. Evidence-based medicine. Is improving quality a key element of a successful healthcare reform? Welcome to a special series on public health policy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Shortell. Dr. Shortell is the Blue Cross of California Distinguished Professor of Health Policy and Management and Professor of Organization Behavior at the School of Public Health and the Haas School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. A leading healthcare scholar, Dr. Shortell has done extensive research identifying the organizational and managerial correlates of quality of care and of high-performing healthcare organizations. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Happy to be here. Dr. Shortell, do we really need a national center for evidence-based medicine? I think we need some entity, given the explosion of medical knowledge, Dr. Lunt, that is only going to accelerate more in the future with the age of genomic medicine and so on. So I think we can learn from a number of other countries, the UK and Canada, that have begun to form these kinds of entities to synthesize the latest evidence from clinical trials and other research and drug trials and so forth and make that available to practitioners on the ground serving patients. And so... Yes, I think something like a National Center for Evidence-Based Medicine that would also be linked to the growing evidence base for how to get things done. And that often has to do with the management sciences, the social behavioral sciences, human factors engineering, health services research. We kind of need to marry those two. One I think of as the content, new treatments, drugs, interventions, therapies, what's best for the patient. And then the other is the context within which physicians and other health professionals do their work. And that knowledge of how to implement change and get things done in practice is really the evidence base that comes from the social and behavioral sciences. So in my vision, we would have a center for evidence-based medicine and management. They might be two separate centers. They could be merged, but you need to interface those two bodies of knowledge, I think, to make it work. And certainly most of us, if not all of us as physicians, receive little to no training in the managerial aspects of implementing change. Exactly. So we could sure use the help. Now, do you know even how long does it take for the latest research evidence to actually make its way into our day-to-day clinical practice? It's a very interesting question. Studies have been done on that, and in many of these areas, it's something like an average of 17 years, if you can believe that before some new drugs, medical interventions, technologies make it into everyday practice. And there's lots of examples of that from the beta blockers, which now the percentage is pretty good, but they were first introduced in the 1980s, to something as simple as flu vaccines, you know, recommended uh, for people over 65, and yet today only about two-thirds of that of those eligible receive flu vaccine. And So from low-tech technology to that to high-tech technology, it often takes many years for it to get disseminated widely into everyday practice. This despite the fact that we uh, are a nation that highly values new technology and thinks we're on the cutting edge, but there's a big difference between what goes on in academic medical centers and what you read about in the paper and what happens every day in in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So we have to find ways to accelerate what the best evidence is, the best practice is, 
and get it more uniform across the country where it can benefit patients. How do you foresee even setting up this agency? It seems like a monumental undertaking. It will be, but there's some entities out there that we could build on. One is the Agency for Health Research and Quality, AHRQ, or some people call it ARC, in Washington, D.C., that has the charge with basically pulling some of the evidence together. And there's another organization called the National Quality Forum that's a repository for what some of the best measures are. And if these organizations and others like them could work together and might form the foundation for such a national center. So, for example, ARC currently has evidence-based practice center reports, and those reports could be expanded upon in terms of meta-analyses of existing evidence on current research. And then, as I indicated earlier, there's a growing evidence base from the social and behavioral sciences and engineering and health services research on what works in practice. And so examples from other countries where this has been done, in the U.K., there's an organization called NICE. I think it stands for something like Clinical Evidence, National Institute for Clinical Evidence, N-I-C-E. And they have also something called the Cochrane Collaborative on Effective Practice and Organization of Care Group. And those entities summarize this evidence and make it available to clinical practitioners. In Canada, there's something called the Canadian Health Services Research Foundation that does this as well. So I think there's examples around how this could work and how this could be set up. We need to have the will to do it and some funding from Congress in order to do this as well. But I think there's increasing interest in this concept. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is the Dean of the School of Public Health at Cal Berkeley, Dr. Stephen Shortell. We are discussing creating a national center for evidence-based medicine. Now, Dr. Shortell, do we know, though, what really works for making changes in clinical practice? We know quite a bit. Just providing data and information, of course, is not going to do it. There's three or four other things that are needed. Uh, You need leadership from the top. You need that physician or that nurse or the administrator who's a real leader and is going to have a vision and push for change and create a culture for change. And I'm reminded that colleagues of mine have done some work on intensive care units and trying to make them safer and reduce infection rates and catheter-related infections. And one of the things they did is they utilized the information and knowledge base from the social sciences about organizational culture and they developed something called a comprehensive unit-based safety program, or CUSP, C-U-S-P, that was based on working with nursing leaders, physician leaders, and administrative leaders in the ICU on changing the culture around what they would report as a mistake, how they could improve their work, visibility of information, how they could trust the data, and so on. And they did a before and after study of this and found that the infection rate decreased significantly as a result of this combination of a clinical and managerial intervention. And so these are the kinds of things that are needed. You need trusted data that, again, electronic information technology can provide and that doctors trust and can use in the way of feedback. You need support systems and resources. You know, you just don't talk a good game. You have to back it up with additional resources And you need incentives. There needs to be an incentive to change behavior here as well. So these are some of the things that we have found in some of our work 
do result in changes in clinical practice if you can put these into place, you know, as a package. But it really does begin with leadership. What do you see as being the main obstacles? Uh, among the obstacles, uh, time, lack of resources. Time uh, and money? <laughs> time and money couldn't, are two big ones. Couldn't possibly uh, be. <laughs> yeah, they're the usual culprits. <laughs> but also if their incentives aren't there, there's not a sense of urgency. The data is not available. You may want to do it. You have the time. You have the resources, but the data aren't good enough. Or you lack some of the skills. Some of this is quality improvement process skills, plan, do, study, act, rapid cycle quality improvement methodologies that, again, doctors and nurses and pharmacists don't learn, don't get exposed to in their professional training, but it needs to occur maybe more in their residencies or at least in, in the practice setting that helps make some of these changes. So th- these are some of the main obstacles. Now, I would think one of the other big problems is just in terms of the evidence. To try to find unbiased evidence is not an easy task as well, that either the evidence is funded by the pharmaceutical industry or the device manufacturers or or the surgeons versus the non-interventionalists, that everybody's got a huge stake in this. How would you deal with that? That's right. And this is why the importance of an evidence-based medicine and practice center, because you would have uh, analysts who sift through all of that. And there's criteria you develop to rule out studies that have, you know, less powerful study designs or where you suspect the evidence base. And this is what a good meta-analysis does is it gets down to the best design studies and tries to summarize the effects of those. But you're right. A lot of the evidence is murky. It can be spun in different ways and uh, can be misinterpreted and can be used to, you know, uh, for one's favorite viewpoint in advance to simply support that and not show the rest of the data, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all legitimate concerns, but I think they, they can be addressed. The other problem that I foresee, again, just as a practicing physician, is among my colleagues, I see something what I call it the set of five, and that is those of us practicing medicine out there, I think our five personal most recent experiences, whether it be with a drug or a surgery or whatever, that's what stands out in our mind. And for example, last month, we had a patient who developed Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is, you know, very dramatic, potentially lethal problem as a side effect of the medicine. And we certainly know that that's a possible side effect of the medicine, but it is pretty rare. But it's not rare in my practice right now because I have somebody with it. So that's definitely tainted my view of potentially using this medicine again, although you know, rationally I can say, well, it's a you know, one in 200,000 side effect, but that one just happened to be in my office. And when I look at meta-analyses, you know, it doesn't emotionally impact me like what I saw in the office yesterday. I think that's right. And you have to reconcile the tension between the two, between our understanding of you know, probability and statistics and so forth, and yet the fact that that one in 200 or even one in 1,000 occurred with your patient in your office. And so you're bound to be a little bit weary and hesitant to use that medication again, even though from an uh, analytic perspective, the chances are near zero that it's going to occur in your next patient. But nonetheless, you have to factor all of that in. And I think what we're saying is, in addition to the physicians and and other health professionals using their own clinical experience, their own best judgment, uh, which is extremely important, that they simply not ignore the evidence Mm -hmm. base, that it be made available to them as another tool. And then you can factor that into your own personal experience, your patient preferences, and so on. 
whereas today too many practices are operating without being up to date on the evidence base or the evidence base not being disseminated in ways that are useful or the practice not having an ability to use that data in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So it certainly doesn't replace individual clinical judgment or experience. Because as you know, we as physicians, well, probably like everybody, we hate to be told what to do. <laughs> you know, it's a matter of, of being patient-focused and patient-centered. What's best for your mm-hmm. patient? Exactly. Good point. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, you're welcome. We've been discussing incorporating an evidence-based center into our healthcare system with Dr. Stephen Shortell. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to a special series on public health policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.